Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring a tiny community on the bank of the Ohio River that has spurred curiosity for centuries. Many unsuspecting travelers happen upon it while traveling east out of Cincinnati on Highway 52, also known as the Ohio River Scenic Byway. Ohio is full of small, unincorporated towns that are easily missed in the seconds it takes to drive through them. This town is no different. It's a collection of homes and one convenience store, surrounded by rolling hills and fields of grain. So why even discuss it? What mystery could possibly exist in such a mundane and ordinary place? Well, what would you think on seeing a sign declaring you were entering Utopia? That's right, Utopia. The name refers to a fantasized community where all is perfect, where peace and prosperity reign. Could it be possible that this mythical concept, first defined by philosophers in the 16th century, actually exists in our home state of Ohio? Do the handful of residents there enjoy a life free from worry, stress, and all the ills of the human condition? If so, how has their secret been kept for so long? Or is it possible that someone just came up with a great name and slapped it on a sign? I mean, there's plenty of examples of that, right? Think of Hell, Michigan, Knock'em Stiff, Ohio, and Oddville, Kentucky. I suppose that might win points for creativity, but that doesn't mean there's any real folklore behind the town, right? Nothing is further from the truth. This once undeveloped and nondescript location about 35 miles east of downtown Cincinnati would become an obsession for a series of cult-like groups, each bent on their own way of creating a world unto itself. Each defined their own rules, determined to create an atmosphere of total peace, love, and great fortune for all. So what happened exactly? Was Utopia ever utopic? The answer is somewhat. The story I'm about to share with you is divided into three chapters. The details are verified in the historical record. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried, folks. So without further ado, let's dig into the curious history of this simple yet enigmatic road stop along the Ohio River. Utopia, Ohio was first founded in 1844 by the ardent followers of a French philosopher named Charles Foyer. While it might be hard to believe in these days, intellectual thinkers like him were admired and adored. Foyer was viewed as a utopian socialist. This philosophy developed out of the French Revolution when lower classes of people rose up against the few that held power and overthrew them. This sea change in power struggle brought about new theories among intellectual thinkers like Foyer, what if a community was founded on the principles of eliminating class? There'd never be a need for another revolution. This thinking was truly radical for the time. What if all members worked cooperatively for the common good from the start? Wars would never begin. Poverty would not exist. All social ills would vanish. It was these bold ideas that caught fire in the hearts of a group of 19th-century Ohioans who dared to create their own utopia 
on the northern bank of the Ohio River. To get a sense for how foyerism, as it was known in those days, was understood at the time, let's review an article published on January 3, 1843, by the Democratic Standard of Georgetown, Ohio. This newspaper was located only 14 miles northeast of what would eventually become the Utopia Settlement. The article begins by lauding Foyer's inventive and enthusiastic brain. It was the accumulation of individual wealth that pitted person against person that made people view one another as the opponent instead of the comrade. Communal living, where everyone shared the fruits of everyone's labor and all enjoyed the same resources, would lead to a state of eternal happiness, free from society's worst ills. The article went on to list a number of prosperous settlements across the country that were founded on these principles. They included communities in rural New York, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. Should these communities continue to succeed, the article predicted that the utopian socialist movement would spread worldwide. Why shouldn't Ohioans enjoy the same prosperity, it asked. A real-world experiment was the only way to convince the masses that this was the way to go. Some group of locals likely read the article and must have felt a sense of wonder. But even more to the point, they must have felt challenged. They would answer the call and dare to create their own utopia in their midst. One of the group was named Henry Jernigan. He would become a leader of the settlement and organize the purchase of nearly 1,200 acres of rich bottomland along the river in Claremont County. Farming and mining would serve as primary industries and the products of all labor would be pulled together and divided equally among the group for its collective needs. Residents would care for one another with love and devotion. Poverty would not exist. The most ardent followers of foyerism believed that the world was about to enter a 35,000-year-long period of peace. Their efforts to live out these principles would lead to a new enlightenment. They were showing the world what could be achieved when everyone contributed to the collective good. Once the land was purchased, the group began selling individual quarter-acre lots for the nominal cost of $15. A marketing committee was established to advertise the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to lead the world into a new socialistic order. All persons, including women, were viewed as free agents in their own right. To the surprise of many, the tiny community would have enough eager volunteers to take root. For two years and eight months, Utopia operated according to its intended ideals. The dream of the learned French philosopher had been put into action and realized. The settlement had attracted a wide range of professions, and each made earnest efforts to devote their talent and labor equitably, regardless of class or what would have been their outside station in life. However, by the fall of 1846, inhabitants eventually grew restless. Individual ambitions grew and impulses toward property ownership and personal achievement could no longer be suppressed. Once some of the original founders eventually moved out of the settlement, their plots would be taken over by others with less adherence to the socialistic principles. 
the project would become abandoned once a critical mass of Foyer's followers left. Utopia would become a nondescript collection of a few dozen homes with the general store. The only business left of note was the 25-acre vineyard owned by one Henry Ehrenfelds. He also ran a fruit distillery. If you visit Utopia today, the most interesting landmark which remains is the underground wine cellar from Henry Ehrenfeld's original property. Nowadays, many people mistakenly refer to this location as an underground church. You can find multiple YouTube videos of paranormal teams investigating this damp, dark, and crypt-like structure. It's possible and perhaps even likely that people held religious ceremonies in this space over the years. However, historical maps of Utopia indicate this location was first intended as a wine cellar and distillery. Clearly, the spirits it was meant to hold were of a liquid form. So how would the cellar become known as a church? This transition marks the beginning of the second chapter of Utopia's strange history. As the original settlement fell apart less than three years after its inception, a new group would find a home among its newly laid streets. For those of you listeners who've heard the Ohio Folklore episode on Gore Orphanage, you'll recall the religious movement of the mid-19th century called spiritualism. It was a very popular mainline faith at the time, which embodied many principles primary among them was the belief that our deceased loved ones remain in spiritual form and that we have the ability to communicate with them through religious practices. One ardent spiritualist of the time went by the name of John Otis Waddles. He was a prim, dapper, and well-educated man from Connecticut. When he and his wife Esther learned of the largely vacant utopia off the bank of the Ohio River, they jumped at the chance to fill it with a group of fellow spiritualists. These newlyweds had been married only two years earlier in Clinton, Ohio, near Cleveland, and had not yet had children. They had become early supporters of women's suffrage and were vocal abolitionists. John, in fact, was president of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society. These views were radical for the time. It's not hard to imagine why the idea of a vacant, secluded community was such an appealing option. When the village of Utopia had dwindled to six lonely families that remained, the Waddles packed their bags and headed in a southwesterly direction until landing in the tiny settlement themselves. They would bring with them an entire community of followers. The group was overjoyed at the chance to create a community where they could practice their religious values away from the confines of larger society. Among them were both whites and blacks. Integrated communities were simply unheard of in the days before the Civil War. This group prided itself as ahead of its time when it came to the radical acceptance of all human beings, regardless of gender, race, or class. Many still identified as Christian, but practiced as spiritualists. This means that they proclaimed to love one another as Jesus taught. But they were also known to hold seances, sacred candlelit gatherings for the welcoming of spirits among them. 
the underground wine cellar became the perfect place, eerie and tomb-like, to hold these seances. Some claim that the spirits conjured up in that place remain, whispers and shadows of people who once were. For a time, Utopia became utopic once again. The mood amongst the Waddles and their followers was joyous and hopeful. The land along the Ohio River was picturesque, and in their celebratory mood, John Waddles decided to move the largest building to the river's edge. The imposing brick edifice had been the crowning masterpiece of the original foyer settlement. It had been built by the founding members and would become the center of all activity within the original community. Against the advice of their surrounding neighbors, the group of spiritualists moved the structure, brick by brick, to the bank. That way, its windows offered a spectacular view of the river. Waddles believed that this would promote good health and optimism for the group. The final brick was moved in early December, 1847. The group was thrilled to have accomplished the task before Christmas and began using the building regularly for gatherings. None could predict the flash flood of the Ohio River, which would take place only a few days later on December 15th. The flood-stricken spiritualists abandoned their wooden frame homes for the more sturdy shelter of the brick hall they had just rebuilt on the river's bank. This was a tragic decision. Let's hear how one newspaper covered the event at the time. The following is quoted from an article in the Portage Sentinel on December 29, 1847. It reads, The following account of the terrible calamity, which is our painful duty to record this morning, is from an eyewitness. Many of our citizens will recognize old friends and associates among those who have been so suddenly hurried into eternity. On the night of the 15th, at about 10 o'clock, just as they were preparing to go to bed, 32 persons who had taken refuge from the flood in the great new brick building at the late foyer settlement, the water having reached the second floor, heard the building beginning to give way and discovered that the walls were falling. Some jumped out into the water, whilst those that remained were crushed and buried in the ruins. In about five minutes, the whole of that beautiful fabric was a shapeless mass of immersed ruins, with but 15 of its inmates breathing the breath of life, 17 having found a tomb. Not a murmur or a groan was heard from the crushed and smothered victims, for the water swept darkly and deeply over them. The dim moonlight looked down calmly and undisturbed upon the wreck that overwhelmed the unseen dead, while the heart-rending cries from the living echoed fearfully in the hills. In about ten minutes after the crash, two skiffs, one from Utopia, a town of short distance above, arrived and rescued the almost frozen survivors who, in their escape from the building, had taken refuge upon drift logs and carried them safely to land. The terrible calamity happened at what was formerly known as the Foyer Settlement. 
It is situated at the mouth of Bullskin Creek in Claremont County, 40 miles above Cincinnati on the Ohio River. The article went on to list the victims' names, including their races, a good number of which were listed as colored. The group also included recent immigrants, various professionals, and businessmen. This group of spiritualists was a diverse one indeed by anyone's standards. Locals from Claremont and Brown counties came to the site to aid with the cleanup and recovery. Communities further downstream, some of which were on Kentucky's side of the river, recovered the bodies of drowned victims. Folk tales about ghostly apparitions hovering over the river's surface near Utopia and further downstream remain today. The stories state that smoky and swirling mists are known to rise above the water and slowly take shape into human forms. These claims are more frequent when the river is high and the waters are raging. Are these lost souls still desperate for a rescue? Or have they crossed into the spiritual realm that they so often claim to communicate with in life? All the hope and optimism of that movement was washed away in one tragic evening. Only a handful of the community survived, including the Waddles. It's hard to imagine the trauma and devastation of that event. The group had started anew and practiced love and acceptance of all, despite gender, race, or class. They welcomed all. In the end, it was brute forces of nature that put an end to the project. The few remaining survivors would disperse in different directions. The Waddles would head to Indiana and have three children before eventually heading to Kansas, where they would join efforts to keep the territory free from slavery. And with the second trial and failure of a utopian society, you might think that these attempts to create a true utopia would die away. But a third attempt would be made, and this time with some measurable success. A direct descendant of immigrants on the Mayflower, a man by the name of Josiah Warren, would try his own hand at making Utopia live up to its name. He was a successful businessman in Cincinnati that owned a lamp factory. He had invented a new lamp that burned lard and was more effective and efficient. He also invented the cylinder printing press. He was a brilliant entrepreneur in his own right. Even with the success, Warren found himself pondering whether he could devise an economic system that would promote a freestanding society. Warren had known of the foyerists who established the first settlement. He had attended one of their marketing presentations on the venture that had been given years earlier in Cincinnati. Warren had interrupted the presenter and told the crowd that their settlement wouldn't last three years. In the end, his prediction was short by only four months. Josiah Warren had foreseen that the original settlement founded on Foyer's principles would fold. History would prove him right. And now he claimed to know just what went wrong and how to fix it. 
Josiah Warren devised a system of labor notes, wherein each unit of labor, be that an hour tilling soil in the fields, or an hour repairing shoes, etc., could be equally exchanged. This system was honed when he built and operated a time store in Cincinnati. Here, people from various trades and professions could exchange their services directly. He put standard general stores out of business with this model. In his system, goods ceased to carry value. Business transactions were reduced to the amount of time it took a person to produce a product or deliver a service. And because most everyone is able to do something, goods ceased to carry value, and all things were obtainable. In this way, differences in class didn't exist. Warren, who would later become known as the father of American anarchy, proclaimed that a person could build a house, feed his family, and provide for all his needs by simply exchanging, or perhaps bartering, labor for labor. Warren believed that this system, if put into place, would tear down capitalism and the evils it produced. Within several months of founding this third utopian settlement, the old wooden shanties from previous years had been torn down and replaced with solid brick houses. All of them were rent and mortgage free, wholly owned by their inhabitants. The village grew to 80 unique households. The town was filled to capacity. The model had proven that successful. Within three years, a grist mill was constructed along the river. The owner of the mill would grind residents' grain at cost, and a co-op arrangement developed. This further eliminated the need for competition or local government oversight. One of the inhabitants of this third utopia, a Mr. E.G. Coverley, perhaps described it best when he was quoted in an 1872 retrospective article on the town. He was still living in his home in Utopia when he said, The labor notes put us into a reciprocating society. The result was, in two years, 12 families found themselves with homes who never owned them before. Labor capital did it. I built a brick cottage one and a half stories high, and all the money I paid out was $9.81. All the rest was affected by exchanging labor for labor. Mr. Warren is right, and the way to get back as much labor as we give is by the labor cost prices. Money prices, with no principle to guide, have always deceived us. This third and final attempt at utopia was arguably the most successful of the three. By 1872, the community had survived over 20 years under these principles. So what happened? The disappointing but perhaps predictable answer was that the existing society and power structures outside the tiny village had no interest in supporting this renegade economy. Those who held wealth in the surrounding properties wanted to hold on to it. They refused to sell land to the village, which might have allowed it to grow into a sprawling mecca of a labor-based economy. As it was, capitalism was encroaching from all sides. As land values increased, especially among the valuable waterway of the Ohio River, pressures built. Property taxes increased. 
and the allure of cheap land and territories farther west grew stronger. Many inhabitants of Josiah Warren's utopia would eventually flee to a community in Minnesota in hopes of recreating what had been already achieved. Land there was cheap, abundant, and with few local government oversights. By that time, Warren had moved on to found similar communities all across the country. Josiah Warren would die in 1874 in his hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. He would become known as the father of American anarchy. This was the polar opposite of Utopia's socialist communities. He believed each individual carried their own sovereignty, that no one person should be beholden to a set of laws or regulations, and that each person could free themselves through the value of their own work and achieve their greatest dreams. So what are we to make of this unassuming speck of a town, lying sleepily along the Ohio River, which parallels Route 52, the two-lane highway that bisects the community? I'm sure many locals have driven through countless times and have never known the importance of the grounds they're traveling. For reasons which remain uncertain yet today, this mundane location has drawn dreamers and philosophers. It's provided an opportunity for the most daring among us to put our most passionate beliefs to the test. We can argue as to the degrees of success taken by each attempt. And in hindsight, we can easily point to flaws and shortcomings that brought about eventual demise. That's one of the great things about history. We all know how it turns out. You and I can easily sit in a place of judgment. Of course, the people who attempted the impossible in Utopia, who wanted to create a community altogether different from the rest of the world, had no idea what the outcome would be. All they had was a belief and the gall to try to put it into practice. Some beliefs were rooted in deep philosophical leanings. Some were rooted in the passion of faith and the idea that some forces are more powerful than ourselves. And lastly, some were rooted on the idea that we are each our own economy, that we can exchange work for work and the world can be at our fingertips. I, for one, am glad that they tried, even though they failed in the end. It goes to show the value in searching for ways of living that are outside the box. These people came to this tiny Ohio village with dreams of proving a concept, with no guarantee of success. May we all have the courage to put our own dreams to practice. In the end, it's really what life is worth living for. This concludes this Ohio Folklore episode on Utopia. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. Ohio Folklore can be found at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. <laughs>